0: Welcome to the Bravest Kind Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Schaefer, and I am a firefighter and EMT in the Seattle area. I'm excited you're on this journey with me, and I look forward to sharing stories of brave and vulnerable individuals, as it is my sincere belief that by doing so, it gives us the ability to unlock bravery within ourselves. This is episode 26 of The Bravest Kind, and my guest today is Keelan Patillo. Keelan is a former professional soccer player, spending the last four years of her career with the Seattle Reign FC of the National Women's Soccer League. Following her retirement from professional soccer in 2016, Keelan started her new career as a firefighter with the Kirkland Fire Department. Keelan and I discussed not only her own playing career, but what it was like growing up in a household with a father who was also a professional athlete, having both played and coached in the NBA. We also talk about her decision to leave behind the world of professional soccer, despite being in her athletic prime and pursuing a career as a firefighter. Keelan is candid about the inequality in pay between male and female professional soccer players and shares her perspective on being one of the few females working in the fire service. Keelan is also the mother of two young boys and she describes the challenge of balancing life as a mom and firefighter, along with how she has gained more perspective and empathy as it pertains to her job since becoming a mother. Keelan is thoughtful, strong, and compassionate, and while we talk about her career pursuits, we also dive into the importance of vulnerability and the concept of impermanence as it relates to human existence. A quick reminder before we start today's show, if you have not yet done so, please rate and subscribe to The Bravest Kind on either Apple or Spotify podcast and share the show with others. Also, if you enjoy this episode, post and tag The Bravest Kind on social media. Find me, Ryan Schaefer, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Keelan, thank you for joining me on my podcast, The Bravest Kind. Keelan and I are both firefighters with the Kirkland Fire Department. We are also both pilots, having graduated from the University of Portland. You are a mother of two, recently just giving birth to your son, Ledger. You're a former professional soccer player. So all kinds of things that I want to dive into with you here today. But first and foremost, thank you for being here.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so Keelan, I want to just learn a little bit more about your upbringing and give our listeners a little bit of information about your background, which maybe wasn't unique to you because it's what you knew, but I think for most people, fairly unique. Your father played in the NBA and was also an NBA coach. He was a head coach and also coached in the WNBA. What was it like having a dad that was a professional athlete and then involved in professional athletics as a coach during your childhood?
1: Yeah. So you're right in that it was just normal for me. So my dad, he played professional basketball and the NBA. And I think he, my mom and dad had my oldest sister right around the time he retired. But um, for my entire life, he was always a coach, either assistant coach or head coach, And what was that like for me? Well, I remember moving around a lot. (laughs) Can imagine. Uh, Because being a coach at the professional level is relatively unstable unless you're, you know, Pete Carroll or um, a very uh, successful coach, then you. Um, But unless you're a super successful coach, you're kind of bouncing around from job to job, which was the case for me and my family. So I think I moved five or six times uh, before I graduated high school, um, all across the country. Um, But it was always exciting. Um, I remember playing, going to practice um, one day with my dad and playing hide and go seek in the stadium with my siblings. So it's like just, I kind of have some random memories like that where like, and it's only now in hindsight that I realize how unique that was. Um,
0: yeah. Most kids probably don't play hide and seek inside a professional yeah, arena. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, it was cool always being around the, you know, that environment and just being like intimately familiar with the life of professional athletes and, and what it's like, um, you know, it was just, right there. It was tangible. So I kind of feel like I grew up knowing that professional sports and being a professional athlete is a thing and it's achievable. Even though I was surrounded by men's professional sports, I just kind of assumed that there'd be something available for women. But yeah, it was it was a definitely a unique childhood.
0: Did your dad push you? Was he somebody that as, as far as athletics were concerned and you and I have talked about this and I know you played a variety of sports growing up but with that background of his and him being a professional coach as well was that something that you were just around and that you had a love for as well or was he yeah what kind of dad was he in terms of parenting and just in terms of his involvement in your own athletics?
1: I think everybody expects me to tell them that he was like pushed all of us real hard but um that was not the case um he was always really supportive of whatever we wanted to do and i remember distinctly a few different conversations with him at different points in my life where he would just say you know like if there's ever come the point when you don't want to play basketball you don't want to play soccer you don't want to play sports at all that is totally fine um and that always I always kind of looked at him like, what you're crazy. I love sports. <laughs> I was, you know, I was that was just being an athlete, that was like what I loved to do. But I always appreciated knowing that it didn't matter to him whether or not I was playing a sport. Um, because I definitely played on some teams where uh some of my teammates were definitely being pushed by their parents to To play that particular sport. So I was always really appreciative of uh, having that support from my dad and knowing that it was totally my decision to keep playing and to pursue, you know, competitive sports in general.
0: Now you ended up having a very decorated career. As I said at the outset, we both went to University of Portland. I graduated much earlier than you did. I was class of 98. So our time there did not overlap. But I know you were the West Coast Conference Player of the Year in 2010. You went on to play professionally both abroad in Europe. As well as here domestically, and your last stop was with uh, the Seattle Rain, who are now the OL Rain. I know they've dropped the the Seattle yeah. from their title, uh, but that was your final stop in your playing days, right before becoming a firefighter. Yeah, Am I that's on correct on that? Yep. Do you have a favorite moment or memory from your playing career?
1: Yeah, I have probably two, two or three big memories and um, favorite. Um, one was, um, when I was a sophomore in college, I had the opportunity to play on the under 20 women's national team. And we went and played in the under 20 women's world cup, um, in Chile. And we ended up winning that. Um, and I was a co-captain of that team. And that was a really, I feel like a, a big moment in my career. Cause I, realized how close i was to like being a pro athlete and like i had the potential to make the full women's national team and so it was just like playing on the world stage and really proving to myself that i was capable of being one of the best in the world um that was a definitely a highlight of my career and then Playing with the rain was all four years was awesome even though the first year we were not very good. <laughs> we we uh, had a losing, losing record and uh, but then like I think in the following couple of years we ended up um, winning the shield so we had the best um, record throughout regular season. Um, we went to the Finals two years in a row. We ended up losing two years in a row, unfortunately, but we were close. Um, but then my, the other memory that is, feels like very real. And like, it was just yesterday was in my last game, um, playing with the rain at Memorial stadium. I, I was a holding midfielder, so I didn't score goals super often. Um, but I ended up scoring and, uh, I just remember, like, turning around and sprinting to my coach, Laura Harvey, and my teammates are chasing after me and everybody just lost it. That um, was a pretty special moment for me because um, it was the last game of my career at Memorial Stadium. And just knowing, like, I had the support of my teammates and um, that was a that was a pretty cool moment.
0: That's a very cool moment. Talk about a storybook yeah. ending right there to your yeah. career. That's where, you know, there's nothing like the excitement around a goal in soccer. I, I, I genuinely love watching people score you know. goals. My, my, I, and I know we've talked about this, both my kids play soccer and there's just pure joy, even at that age. And then we've gotten really into, you know, watching a lot of MLS and a lot of premier league and champions league. And it's just, uh, it's unlike anything else in sport. I love it. It's really cool. Yeah.
1: I, uh, it's probably Like one of the biggest things that I miss about playing is just like that, that moment of just pure joy and adrenaline. It's really unmatched. And it's probably the, one of the things that I miss most about playing.
0: I believe it. And, And you can see it, you know, it's like, if you go to a concert and you watch musicians up on stage and they're, they're in the zone, yeah. you know, they're feeling it. You can just see sometimes up there, there's a, even though they might have a crowd of 10, 20,000 people, it's almost like it's just them up on stage. And that's the way I feel hey, a little bit in all sports, but there's something I think a goal in soccer is so hard to come by. Yeah. And there is just this, yeah, you can see it on people's faces after they score. It's this like euphoria. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That overcomes
0: them. Okay. And the team, you know, it's always that group celebration. It's really, it's really cool. Yeah. Having been, a professional athlete and again growing up in a household with a father who himself was a professional athlete and then coached professionals what is the biggest misconception people have when it comes to the lifestyle of professional athletes do you think
1: um probably i would say well i would think it's probably two things and this is from my own experience as a female professional athlete um One, the first one, the reason I bring up female professional athlete is because I think a lot of people when they hear professional athlete, they think, oh, like you must have been paid a lot of money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I'm here to correct that (laughs) assumption, (laughs) (laughs) which is why I'm a firefighter now. Yeah, I think in so I retired in 2016, so about five years ago. And at the time, the maximum salary in the league, the NWSL was $30,000.
0: That was Um, the maximum
1: that was the maximum. Yeah. So I think it's gotten better since then, but it's still, um, nothing to write home about. Um, so that's a big misconception. I think now people are kind of cluing into that, um, just with like the equal pay movement, um, with the women's soccer. And, um, so I think that's becoming more of, a I guess, not as much of a surprise to people. But then the other thing that I would say is I think people expected um, professional athletes to be training all the time, Um, you know, double days and just training all the time. Um, But I think what really separated some of the best players from the others is that they were really good at their downtime. So rest and recovery. Um, And for me, that was um, something that I always struggled with because I didn't, I'm, I'm a pretty active person and I didn't love to, um, you know, go home from practice and sit around watch Netflix and rest and recover. I always wanted to be doing something. Um, And so I think those would be the two biggest misconceptions that from my experience, at least.
0: I feel like I could have done okay as a professional athlete on the rest and recovery part.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You could be doing your podcast now as a pro tennis player.
0: That's right. There you go. There you go. Could have nailed that part. Any regrets? Or things that you would have done differently? I mean, you just talked about that right there, that maybe you didn't uh, do the rest and recovery portion as well as maybe some. And and actually, there's a lot of importance to that as well, right? Not only your yeah. physical recovery, but of course, the mental recovery that yeah. comes from that as well. Do you have any other uh, regrets or things that you wish you had done differently about your playing career specifically?
1: Yeah, I think um, so... I got done playing my rookie season in the WPS, which was the league before the NWSL. Um, I was playing for the Boston Breakers, and I had a really good rookie season, and I started getting called in with the U.S. national team after that season, and then the league folded, and then everybody was scrambling to get overseas um, before the transfer window closed, but um, there's only a certain number of spots on foreign teams. There was suddenly a flood of pro players who needed and wanted to go play on a team overseas. And so I, um, got the opportunity to go on trial. I spent like, Oh, spent a week in Germany for, um, basically trying out for a team and I spent the week there and I knew that it wasn't the right fit for me. Hmm. Um but I was under so much pressure to to get overseas and continue playing um that I ended up signing with them anyways even though I knew it wasn't the right fit for me and then the next 6 months that I played with that team I proceeded to basically just like spiral <laughs> I was severely overtrained I busted up my ankle my busted up came home with swollen knees because I was overtrained. And because of the overtraining, I and I was hurting all the time that I ended up starting to kind of hate and resent soccer and the coach at the time. And I just kind of went into this slump um, at a pretty crucial time in my career. um mm-hmm. Right when I was starting to get in with the national team, um, is when I kind of my body just started breaking down to the overuse stuff. And I went into this mental slump and I couldn't really quite figure out how to get out of it. So, um, I ended up uh, getting together with a sports psychologist who helped me a lot and helped me kind of come out of that. But I look back at that experience and I wish I would have listened to my gut and not signed a contract with that team. Um, but I, I just feel like I was just under so much pressure to, to take any opportunity that I could get. Uh, I was desperate enough yeah. to do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a valuable experience. I learned a ton. But, yeah, I just feel like it was just kind of like this perfect storm Um, that happened, like I said, a very crucial period in my career. And uh, sometimes I wonder what would have happened had I not signed over there. I just think listening, listen, I wish I would have listened to that inner knowing. Um, Good advice probably for all of us
0: (laughs) and in in all aspects of life of listening and having that intuition, listening to our gut. Did you find that a lot of your fellow teammates and other players also struggled with a lot of the mental stressors? From playing?
1: Yeah, I think that's what separated uh, the great from the good. And definitely there was some talk of people seeing sports psychologists and we would have somebody come in occasionally and and give like a little presentation on what is like sports psychology and how can you be, you know, what's the mental side of the game. but. Nobody could really afford to pay a sports psychologist um, to help them. So nobody was really taking advantage of it as far as I know. I think it's probably a little bit different now uh, because mental health is such a big topic right now mm-hmm. and, and more than just pro sports. Um, I mean, yeah. you, you hear about it everywhere now, which is great. Yeah, I just think that that the mental toughness Um, is definitely part of what separated the great from the good.
0: You know, just hearing you talk about pay inequality based on gender between being a, a female professional soccer player and a male professional soccer player and see this in so many sports, not just soccer, not even having enough money to pay for a sports psychologist. How about overseas in Europe? And again, you shared that story, um, of signing with that team in Germany, even though it went maybe against your judgment. Is the pay and support better over there or worse or on par? How is that compared to here in the U.S., especially for women professional athletes and women professional soccer players?
1: I think that's the other big misconception. I think a lot of people think that because soccer is so huge over in Europe, that the women's side must also be more popular, but it's actually n- not. Um, in fact, in England, like soccer is sometimes known as like the men's sport. And so the English women's national team and their league over there has been fighting tooth and nail to... Uh, gain some traction and popularity and support. I think it's starting to happen, um, but yeah, it's just uh, the the pay overseas was um, typically not as good as it was in the United States. Now they had to they had to sign international players. They had to get them over and entice them over somehow. In my in my case, it was fairly equal to what I was getting paid in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was just, you know, I just really wanted a place to play at the period of time. So yeah, definitely is. uh, And now I think it's still about on par as it is in the United States, but definitely not, not better by any means.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure sources of frustration for, you and everyone that you play with i would i would have to imagine
1: yeah it was we joked you know we joked that um when we graduated college you know we were thinking of like you know oh we're gonna you know you walk into your first professional locker room and you're like Mm -hmm just like mortified <laughs> because you realize holy crap did i like get demoted or like yeah. somebody playing a prank on me because oftentimes the locker rooms at the division one collegiate level were a million times nicer than the locker rooms at the pro level um so it was kind of um it was it was a bit of a joke but uh it was kind of like a joke like you'd be crying in on the inside <laughs> of course
0: right yeah no i, I know what you mean You're like, it's like the only way you can actually make it bearable is by making light yeah. of it a little bit well especially yeah. you coming from University of Portland which you know for those unfamiliar has a very rich soccer, uh, tradition and history there, uh, you know, where it, there is no football program at university of Portland. And I mean, soccer is king at that school and that's what people yeah. would tailgate for and pack the stadium for. And especially yeah. I know they've fallen off a little bit, but especially when I was going there and during your time, I mean, it was one of the elite programs in the country. Oh, yeah, so yes, I could imagine.
1: Okay, you say soccer is king, but I would say soccer is queen because the women's side, <laughs> when I was there, I mean, people, we mm-hmm. would sell out. We would, be, know. we would regularly be getting 5,000 fans in the stadium. And then I graduated and started playing professionally in Boston. And we were playing at Harvard Stadium at the time. And I don't know how many thousands of people that stadium holds. And we were like, we were lucky to get a thousand fans in that huge stadium. So it just yeah. felt so ridiculous. It just was, you know, you'd be playing in this massive stadium and it just felt like yeah. there were ants in the stadium or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's always better having a smaller stadium sure. than a cavernous stadium with hardly anybody in there. Yeah. And yes, thank you for correcting me. You're right. Soccer <laughs> you're is great. Right. And, and, and you're well, you know, when I was there, in fact, I can remember my sophomore year. Both the men and women's programs made it to the final four. I think the men lost in the final four and the women lost in the championship game. Since then, the women's trajectory continued going up and have won a couple national championships, a couple of NCAA titles, and the men's program definitely started declining. So you are right. And and yeah, a really just a really unique. I think atmosphere uh, for a school to throw so much support into soccer and, and, and especially women's soccer. I mean, that was, and I don't know if it yeah. still is, but that was definitely the thing to do on campus when we were there go to soccer games.
1: Yeah. It was a very fun period of my yeah. life. It's definitely one of the reasons why I decided to attend the University of Portland was because of the, the, uh, men's and the women's program being what they were and are.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's shift gears a little bit. Again, our connection is being firefighters. Yeah. And so following your career as a soccer player, you became a firefighter. What was the draw to a career in the fire service after your soccer playing career days were over?
1: Yeah. So oh, I don't think I need to hash out the instability of the leagues. Um Cause they've mentioned it a few times already, but I think that was the main, the main thing that I was looking for. I was looking for a career that was fulfilling and stable because soccer, what for me was, I mean, very fulfilling for a long time. Um, but towards the end of my career, I just felt like I was missing something. Like it wasn't quite everything I wanted it to be. Um, and I was still having a lot of fun. I was healthy. Um, I was good. I was starting. I probably could have played another ten years or more. But I definitely was spent my six years as a professional athlete trying to figure out what I was going to do when my career was done. And so I looked at everything from working in the gym um, to coaching. I mean, you name it. I was trying to figure it out. And it wasn't until my Fifth year um playing pro soccer that my mother-in-law was like, Well, have you ever thought of being a firefighter? And all of a sudden it was like, No, why have I not thought of that? And yeah. uh she um my mother-in-law and father-in-law were really good friends with a former uh Seattle firefighter. And um I ended up meeting with him and having a conversation about what a career in the fire service was all about. And it was definitely like everything he talked about kind of checked everything off that I was looking for. Um, and so it was in that moment that I was like, okay, well, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I know what I'm going to do. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of it for me. Um, yeah. but yeah, I was just craving craving something that was mm. fulfilling and stable because uh, the, the, instability of The leagues, uh, the traveling, the pay just kind of started to wear on me. And uh, I wanted, uh, you know, to to be saving for the bigger things in life. My partner and I were getting married and we were, you know, and we knew we wanted to have kids at some point. Um, But we also knew that my benefits and pay weren't going to cut it. So uh, that was it.
0: Okay. Well, and we'll talk about that because that point in time has come as far as becoming a parent. Before we go down that route, though, can you talk about any parallels or similarities between being a professional athlete and a firefighter?
1: Yeah, there's a lot in my mind. So the first thing that I knew that I didn't want to do is I I didn't want to be at a desk all day in, in a cubicle. Um, so I wanted something that was active and firefighting is certainly that, uh, it's active, it's exciting. Uh, every call you go on is a little bit different. I feel like you can kind of get into that same flow state, um, as you can with soccer where when you're running a call, whether it's EMS or a fire call, uh, you're not really thinking about anything else, but that like where you're totally present, um, in that moment that you kind of hit a bit of that flow state um, which is definitely one of the best things about sports. Mm-hmm. You're on a team. So, you know, working on a crew, you ended up getting really close with your crew and you're training with them day in and day out, running calls together. You're living together. because you know playing uh, professionally, travel all the time. you'd be living with your team in hotel rooms and whatnot. Yeah, there was just there's a lot of similarities between pro sports and I guess just any sport team in in firefighting, which is why I think if you ask any firefighter if they played sports, their answer is probably yes because I think that there is there is just many similarities between the two.
0: There's no doubt. It definitely draws a type of person. <laughs> most yeah. everybody in there, most all of us have uh, not the same background, but a lot of similar interests and a lot of the same draw as to, to that profession. For sure. And like I said, athletics seems to be a, a big one. I love how you talk about being in that flow state. And I've talked about that. Before on my podcast and just with others, how sometimes yeah, when you're in a a big call, you are in the moment and just focused at the task at hand. And it's so difficult to get to that place oftentimes in life where you really are present just in that moment, sitting in that moment. And uh, it is, yeah, I think about that often too. Sometimes after a big call, you're like, oh man, I didn't even, wasn't focused on anything else other than the task at hand. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Well, now you said it was your mother-in-law that kind of planted the seed, if you will, about firefighting. We talked a little bit about the inequality in pay between men's professional soccer, women's professional soccer. You've now chosen a career that is very male dominated just in terms of sheer numbers when I say that, uh, mm-hmm. when our department is a department of what, about 110, 115 firefighters at Kirkland? And yeah, right there. what do we have? Maybe five, four? Okay, four. Well, first and foremost, was there any trepidation on your part? I'm, I'm sure your eyes were wide open to this fact. Was there any any worries, any fear, anything like that? Being a female coming into that kind of environment with those kind of numbers?
1: Um, not really I, and I'm not sure if that's just because just growing up with three brothers, I was used to being around my brothers all the time playing with them but and then in college, the women's soccer team was really good buddies with the men's baseball team, and I don't know, I was just always i always worked well with with guys and um, so I never really felt intimidated um by the numbers. um now, with that said, I Um, definitely feel more passionate about recruiting and getting more qualified women involved in the fire service. I was going to talk to
0: you. I was, I was going to ask you that. That was going to be a follow-up question. Yeah. How can we do better? I mean, what, what's the, what's the path to that?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. Part of it is just visibility. So I feel really passionate about that because I told that story about my mother-in-law having to, tell me that like I should be a firefighter. And I was 20, what was I 27 at the time? And it had literally never crossed my mind. And I sometimes think about that. And I'm like, why did that not enter my brain? Like why did I not think of that on my own? And I think it's part of it is I think it's because I've like, I cannot remember, I don't have any real memory of like seeing firefighters when I was younger. And any of them being women. So just was something that if you don't see it, you don't know that it's possible. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I just think like the visibility of female firefighters needs to be increased, especially for kids. Um, So I love when we go out and do school tours. Like I love to do that. I know some people, it's not their favorite part. <laughs> um, cause it's just, you know, one more thing to add to the list of things you need to do that day. But I actually really enjoy them because I hope that, you know, some little girl will, and, or little boy too, um, will look at me and realize that, Oh wow. Like there's a girl up there. There's a, there's a female firefighter up there and women can do it too. Yeah. I definitely feel very passionate about that. Um, and then Similar to what my mother-in-law did, like, if you know of a female or a a young woman who has the potential to be a firefighter, I think, you know, throwing it out there, like, just ask them, like, because maybe they've never thought of it on their own, or maybe they're scared to do it. But, uh, yeah, I definitely, in the last five years, have become much more passionate about this.
0: Good. I mean, we, we need that. There needs to be more visibility. And like you said, I think the more young girls recognize that this is a option and a profession that they can do, then the more draw there will be to it. What have been some of the bigger challenges, if any, that you have faced being a female firefighter? Again, talk about so many people coming from a sports background or military background, and it can be, you know, kind of this good old boy's environment at time. I mean, so coming from your perspective have there been any major challenges or issues at all?
1: Um, I wouldn't say that there's been like anything major that's come up. There's definitely like some things that just women in general typically not don't have as much upper body strength as men. So it's just figuring out different ways to do the same task. Um, so whether that's picking up a patient or throwing a ladder, um, it's just trying to figure out the way that will work for your body. But then um, in terms of, you mentioned like the good old boys club. I just, one thing that I definitely miss, um, and we've talked about like the union and firefighters will talk a lot about the brotherhood. And part of that definitely is like, man, I when I was playing soccer and surrounded by a bunch of women who were into the same thing that I was and working towards this common goal, I definitely miss that feeling of like, like we would call it, I guess, a sisterhood, if you were to use the same term. Um, So I definitely sometimes feel like I look around and it's like, oh, wow, I am like the only woman here. (laughs) And not that that's a bad thing. Um And not that it just is like, sometimes I'll look around and be like, man, I really wish there was more women here. <laughs> um, yeah. But that's not, that's like no fault of anyone's. It's just a matter of the fire service getting out of some of the... Uh, I think the fire service as a whole is used to a flood of people wanting to be firefighters. And so they can just like pick who they want out of the bunch. And the fire service as a whole is not used to the idea of recruiting. And the idea is actually quite controversial, which is really interesting to me. Um, Hmm. because if I think if we're trying to diversify as a fire service, then we are going to need to go out and recruit people. So yeah, women, but what about if we want to reflect the community that we serve? So I don't think we have any like Indian firefighters, the Hispanic firefighters are probably low in terms of numbers. So it's just a matter of, again, visibility, but also recruiting. Um, And That's probably a podcast in and of itself.
0: (laughs) It probably is. And you probably have lots of (laughs) uh, very
1: strong opinions on the matter, but it's uh, definitely an, an interesting topic at this period of time.
0: It is. There's no doubt. We can do better on many levels in terms of creating more diversity within fire departments as a whole, not just speaking of our department, but I think that's across the board for the for most sure. part. No, yeah,
1: and that's why and that's why I use the word fire service. I don't yeah. think it's I don't think it's a department specific. I think it's no. the fire service as a whole.
0: Yes, I would agree with that. Okay. Well, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and you and your wife Paige have two young children. Watson is eighteen months old old. And then you recently gave birth to Ledger, who is how old now?
1: He's five months now.
0: Okay. So you got yeah. two little dudes, both under the age of two yeah. and you us. just came back on the line. And for those listening, when I say on the line, so back to doing a regular shift work um, and we work 48 hour shifts in Kirkland, what has that been like so far juggling motherhood, and especially after just having given birth to this boy and now doing that and being gone for those stretches. And I know coming home, we can be physically drained, mentally drained, all that. How are you managing juggling those two worlds right now?
1: Gosh, I just had so much come into my brain because there's a lot behind this question. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just got back on the line a few weeks ago and. In like the weeks leading up to getting back to my first shift, I was just really excited. Um, And then the night before my shift, I was sitting on the couch with my partner Paige and I just had this like flood of emotion come over me and I felt so sad in that moment. And then I was driving to work in the morning and felt like definitely like a... Like a, like I was grieving something like a period of time that is coming to an end where, you know, I was at home with my boys and my, uh, my little one who I'm uh, nursing. So it's just being gone for 48 hours. I think that's probably the the biggest thing is just being gone for 48 hours. Just, it used to seem like nothing before kids, like not a big deal. Um, And then enter kids and it. Definitely can seem like a long time to be away, Um, especially now that I'm um, breastfeeding. So that's the other part with this is that like the the planning and the, the pumping and the amount of milk I have to have in my freezer to just go to work is like like yeah. 80 ounces or something. It's just, it's a ton of milk. So my freezer is like, you know, I have one shelf that's just like, <laughs> milk. but, um, it doesn't seem like for those people who are listening and either like, maybe their, their wife or their spouse doesn't have, um, hasn't, doesn't have a kid or they don't have kids. Like that might not seem like a big deal, but it. It is. It's a, it's a big time commitment. And the other part about all this, um, motherhood, it's been a very humbling experience. Um, so I being the athlete that I am, I always thought that, you know, I'd be able to get pregnant and like go through labor and delivery and then just like bounce back. Um, yeah. But it has been not what I imagined it to be because first of all, I had a C-section. So that changed things quite a bit. And then just the recovery period after postpartum has taken a lot longer than I thought it would. And it's also just a fascinating topic to me because you're cleared, like, quote, cleared after six weeks, Um, after having after delivery to do normal things but if you further inquire what normal things are your doctor will probably tell you like oh going on walks or like carrying a basket of laundry
0: (laughs) that's probably not throwing ladders and overhauling hundreds of feet of uh, hose and yeah it's
1: (laughs) like so i just think we need to better define what normal is because normal for me is you know, going out for hikes and weightlifting. And like you just said, like throwing ladders and like, you know, pulling hose. And so it's just been, it's been a humbling experience. Um, I think that I have a lot more compassion for parents and mothers, especially. So I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be able to use that compassion, newly found compassion and empathy that I have, um, on the calls in the future. I think that'll probably come full circle. Um, but yeah, it's definitely been a process. Um, but it's uh it's been over it's been a mix, a mixed bag of emotions, that's for sure. And part of that's probably the hormones.
0: <laughs> well <laughs> it's just there's just so much going. On. I just can't imagine. I just know I got hired when my daughter was three months old and then my my son was born once i was a firefighter and i can remember those times being gone and those nights and and just being so drained and like you said just feeling like 48 hours is a really long time and then to throw in nursing and having to yeah. having to pump so that there's enough milk i mean a huge huge respect for what you are doing and i know there's times that life you just you just do what you got to do Yeah and i do think yeah. you're right it, it, it does you know, being a parent or or just anything, not even a parent, but it is interesting when you have certain experiences in life, how that does change your empathy level towards patients and your ability to relate. And I'm always impressed at certain people based on what their background is and life experience, how that allows them to connect to certain patients that we see in ways maybe that others can't. And so I think that's a really good insight uh, that you provided there as well. Cause it does, it does change things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sure.
0: Keelan, you are happiest when?
1: Oh, oh boy. <laughs> I'm happiest when I'm in that flow state that we talked about. Yeah. That's uh, probably the biggest thing that I miss about um, playing sports. Um, and when I retired from professional soccer, I like, that was it. Like I, you know, cut the cord so to speak i just kind of stopped and went cold turkey and so i feel like ever since then i've been trying to uh, chase that flow state <laughs> and so that is definitely when i'm happiest
0: a non-living thing that you cannot live without
1: uh gosh this is maybe Ooh. I'm gonna to have to say my tennis shoes.
0: Oh, nice! Get out there and just be active.
1: Yeah, if I didn't have my tennis shoes um, and I wasn't able to go on runs and such, um, I would. I don't think anybody would want to be around me. <laughs>
0: So it's it's just not it's 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 not really a non-limiting thing you can't live without. It's for, for those yeah. around you and yeah. in your in your inner circle exactly. as well. <laughs> Fair enough. If you could have a conversation with the twenty-year-old version of yourself, what advice would you give?
1: Hmm. Um. I would probably talk about the concept of impermanence. <laughs> Um, I don't think I have come into that concept until semi-recently, but sometimes when there were, you know, some, some dark times or hard times or whatever it was, um, it just felt like those times would last forever. And just knowing that everything has to change and that it's not going to last forever, I think would have been an interesting topic to discuss with my 20 year old self. Hmm.
0: I like that. You have to do something you're scared to do. What is your process of quieting that fear and proceeding anyways?
1: Uh, taking a long, slow exhale and counting to three.
0: <laughs> um, three does it. Not bad. Yeah. Not bad. You no, know I, uh, three. I like it.
1: I've, uh, yeah, I will occasionally, this is not, not that I'm like scared to do things a lot, um, but I definitely do make myself do some uncomfortable things like a like ice baths or um, coming out of the sauna and getting into a cold shower is not a very enjoyable experience. But a long, slow exhale and uh, just a three count will certainly help get my butt in that cold shower.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm impressed. I think it'd take me a little bit more, but that's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> All right. A final question for you. What does being brave mean to Keelan Petillo?
1: I think if anybody has watched or heard of Brene Brown and her talk on vulnerability, I think we'll know what I'm getting at here. I think being brave is um, being vulnerable and opening yourself up to others and maybe more importantly yourself because uh, it's Definitely, it's amazing what we are able to tell ourselves, the lies that we tell ourselves in order to make ourselves more comfortable. Being brave enough to to look at what is really you and honest. Um, and then being brave enough to show your true self to yourself and others, I think is uh, I think that I think that's what's being brave is just being willing to be vulnerable.
0: Well said. Well, Keelan, thank you so much for joining me. Our department is fortunate and lucky to have you. And I wish you all the best here on these days at home with (laughs) motherhood and juggling two young ones. Uh, And uh, yeah, just really a lot of respect and admiration for uh, the person that you are and everything that you're doing. So thank you and look forward to continuing working with you for many years.
1: Well, the feeling is definitely mutual. Thank you for having me on your podcast today.
0: All right. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye, Keelan. Bye. That's a wrap on episode 26 with Keelan Patillo. Thanks again to Keelan for joining me on The Bravest Kind and providing insight into her world as a professional athlete, firefighter, and mother. To find out more about what's going on in my world and check out stories of guests that have appeared on The Bravest Kind, you can visit my website at ryanshafer.com. That's R Y A N S H E A ffer.com. You can also find the show on Apple or Spotify podcasts. One final reminder to share, rate, and subscribe to The Bravest Kind with Ryan Schaefer. We'll be back at it next week with another fearless guest. Until then, continue to be brave in your own lives.